Sabbath School Study Hour. I'm Pastor Rod Thompson. I'm going to be leading our study today. And whether you're here in the sanctuary with us or you're watching at home online in the local area across the country or around the world, I want to thank you for joining us for our study this week on worshiping the Creator. But before we get into our study, I want to point you to our free offering that we have that goes along with this study. It's a small pocketbook titled, How Evolution Flunked the Science Test. And you can get that free offering by just going to your phone and dialing the number 866-788-3966 and asking for offer number 169. If you're in the United States, you can also text the code SH037 to the number 40544. And if you're outside of the United States, you could go to the internet and just go into, type into the URL, the, the name study.aftv.org forward slash SH037. And we would be happy to send that pocketbook to you. Well, family, according to Webster's Dictionary, the word worship is synonymous with fervent esteem, with adoration. It can be a title of honor. It can also mean submissive respect or to idolize. I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, the holy angels in heaven say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created thing, all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This verse is telling us that God is worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our fervent esteem. He is worthy of our submissive respect. In other words, He's worthy of our worship. And it tells us why. Because He is the Creator of all things. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33 verse 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and there's nothing that was made without Him. This is, of course, talking about Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says that we are to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the seas, and the springs of water. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are worthy of our worship. And why? Because they created all things. 
Brothers and sisters, contrary to popular teaching today, you did not evolve from a monkey. You were created by God. We are not a genetic accident. We are much more than an advanced member of the animal kingdom. We were created in the image and in the likeness of God, just like Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 tells us. We have incredible value because God created us and God created you for fellowship. He wants a relationship with you and you are unique in the eyes of God. You are special to God. This week's lesson explores the significance of creation itself. After all, what else should we believe as Christians that has more significance and greater implications than the doctrine of creation? Friends, I want you to notice what Genesis chapter 1 does not say. It does not talk about justification by faith. Genesis chapter 1 has nothing to say about, about the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. I want you to notice that there is not a word in Genesis chapter 1 about the second coming of Jesus. I want you to notice that the, the Bible is totally silent in Genesis chapter 1 uh, in the area of the Ten Commandments and the eternal perpetuity of God's law. Genesis chapter 1 says nothing about the state of the dead. And we might ask ourselves why. And the answer is very simple. And that is even though all of those doctrines are essential, although all of them are very important, they become meaningless without the foundational truth of the doctrine of creation. On October 20th, 1962, astronaut John Glenn made his awe-inspiring orbit around the Earth. 36 years later, at the age of 77, John Glenn once again went back into space. And when he returned, they had a press conference, and he told the reporters to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. He went on to say, it only increases my faith. Brothers and sisters, many of us probably didn't realize that many of the early astronauts had a very deep religious faith in God. And going into space only increased their faith. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were astronauts that are probably most famous for being the first astronauts to walk on the moon. And for that very uh, famous saying, this is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 
But I would assume that many of us never knew that before they stepped out of that spaceship onto the moon, that Buzz Aldrin pulled out his Bible, a silver chalice, and those uh, emblems of the bread and the wine, and there on the moon they celebrated communion. Frank Borman was the commander of the first space crew that went beyond Earth's orbit. And from 250,000 miles out in space, Borman looked down at the Earth and he radioed back to the Earth a message that began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. When Borman and the crew returned back to the Earth, they had a press conference and, and Borman told the reporters, at that moment, he had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there had to be a God and that there was a beginning to all of the universe. You see, friends, all of these astronauts sensed that this world was not a result of random chance or of an unplanned chance, nor is life a cosmic accident. But they all recognized that this world and everything in it was created by an all-powerful, omniscient God. The three angels' message of Revelation chapter 14 proclaims with a loud voice the message of creation and an omniscient God. Brothers and sisters, God is not caught by surprise by anything. God knows what's going to happen before it happens. And the message of the three angels was designed by God to be a message that would reach the world at the end of time that is steeped in humanistic and postmodern challenges. Family, it is no accident that at the same time that Darwin was spewing out his doctrine of evolution, that God was sending out a message to the world through his remnant people uh, to a lost and dying world, the message that we are to worship the Creator. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that the doctrine of evolution is true. Now, of course, we don't believe that, but I want you to imagine for a moment that the doctrine of evolution is true. If it is true, then that means that the Bible and everything in it is a lie. You see, brothers and sisters, the, doctor, the doctrine of evolution and the doctrine of creation are completely and totally 100% incompatible with each other. And brothers and sisters, it grieves my heart today 
when many pastors and theologians are trying to bring a symbiotic relationship between these two doctrines. They cannot both be right. Either evolution is right or creation is right, and we should not be trying to bring a, a synthesis between the two of them. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to think about that statement that I just made. Evolution and creation are, are not compatible with each other. And so you have the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, it says this. And God said... Oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's not verse 1. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Friends, if, if the doctrine of evolution is true, then within those two verses that we just read, there are three lies. Let's look at them again. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, says the original work of creation was finished in seven literal 24-hour days. Now, there are some people that might argue creation was finished in six days and then God rested on the seventh day. But I submit to you that there was a created day on the seventh day. God created one more and then he rested on that seventh day. So if as science claims that the creative process is an evolutionary process that is still going on today, then that verse is a lie. When you go to verse 2, it says that God ended his work that he had done. If evolution is true, then what they say is that the creation process is still ongoing. And therefore, if evolution is true, that verse must be a lie. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 also says that God rested on the seventh day from all of His work. If evolution is true then this is the seventh day of what? Evolutionists say that creation has taken billions and billions of years so far. If it is true, then, God's, uh, then saying that God rested on the seventh day of creation is a lie. And friends, tragically these three lies are, would only be the beginning of lies. And so we must ask ourselves a question. And the question is, which one of them is right? Is it evolution or is it creation? And we might ask ourselves another question, and that is, who is the father of lies? If we want to 
understand which is the truth. The Bible describes to us the story of creation in just two short chapters. It talks about a God who is so powerful that He just speaks things into existence. God said, let there be, and it was. Where there was previously nothing, then God spoke, and now there is substance, now there is matter, now there is something. But evolution teaches that there was nothing, and then somehow nothing blew up and made something. But more than that, the Bible teaches and it describes how God's creation was corrupted, how sin entered into the world, how God's creation was marred and how man fell into sin. And now the rest of the book describes how the Creator God is recreating us into His image and into His likeness. I want to read to you a story that is in our quarterly, in the teacher's edition. It's about a man by the name of Bruce Olson when he was 19 years old. It says that at that age, he went into the jungles on the border of Colombia and Venezuela to bring the gospel message to the Bari tribe. The Bari were a primitive aboriginal people isolated in the dense jungles of South America. They were known for their fierce fighting ability and their violent barbaric tactics when they warred against other tribes. Bruce was unfazed by their brutal reputation, and if necessary, he was willing to give his life in order to bring them the gospel message. He spent weeks trying to win their confidence. No Westerner had ever entered this territory before. Slowly over time, the Bari learned to love this gentle, caring foreigner. As Bruce shared the gospel with this primitive natives, they experienced new life in Christ. The all-powerful Creator changed their lives. Their once warlike, violent tribe became a force for peace in the entire region. Just as Bruce was making real progress for the gospel, the unexpected happened. Colombian guerrillas kidnapped him and held him in a secret hideout deep in the jungle. Subsequently, the Colombian army attempted to recruit the Bari to war against the guerrillas. But the Bari refused, saying, 
violence only engenders violence. Bruce was held for months in inhumane conditions, yet he was able to rise above the horror of his circumstances. He won the confidence of his captors. Eventually, they gave him a Bible. Day after day, he shared God's word with them. And more than a hundred of these rebel fighters accepted Christ and broke with the guerrilla force laid down their weapons, and rejoined society as productive Colombian citizens. You see, brothers and sisters, only God can take a sinful person and recreate them into the man or woman that he created them to be. Evolution has no answer for the state of moral depravity that we find our world in today. But the Creator God is able to recreate us into His image. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, talking about God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, talking about you and me, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, talking about Jesus. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Talking about the recreative power of God to transform our lives, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created us. God is able to transform the lives of those who love him, those who surrender their hearts to him, those whom he has called and those whom he is changing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created us. This goes along with that story in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus and he's telling us, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. We have to surrender our hearts to God and then he can transform us. He can change us. In spite of the evil forces that were marshaled against Bruce Olson, the all powerful creator God had a plan for his life and all of the powers of hell could not prevail against it. And just like God had a plan for Bruce Olson's life, brothers and sisters, he has a plan for your life and for mine. 
Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You see, family, God desires for all of us to live for all eternity. And He has a plan to destroy evil. He has a plan to destroy sin, to destroy death. And He has a plan to not only recreate you, but to recreate this earth back to its original design. I heard a story years ago. You've probably heard this story already or maybe some variation of it. But I think it's worth repeating because it makes a very powerful point. And even though this story is fictitious, it is made up, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about. In this story, there were supposedly this, this group of scientists that were uh, bragging about their ability to create a man. And I don't think that that's too far-fetched for us in our world today. I remember even as a boy growing up that they were cloning animals and it shouldn't surprise us if they have cloned a man in secret. But this story talks about how these, uh, these scientists are bragging about how they can create a man. And so God engages them in this conversation and He challenges them to go ahead and create a man. And so they're excited about that and they're thinking that they can do it. And so God uh, challenges them to a man-making contest. And so the, the scientists are all excited. They go get their shovels. They get a wheelbarrow. They go outside. They get some dirt. They bring it back inside. They lay it out. They're ready to form a man out of the dirt. And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Hold on a minute. God says, you have to go get your own dirt. That is mine. You see, the point of, of the story is that you and I, we are able to take material things and create something out of it. But God is the only one who is able to create something out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. It's talking about Jesus and how when God speaks, tangible matter appears. When God speaks, it is so, even though it may have not previously been. Because God's Word has creative powers, and it can make it so. And when we worship 
the God who created all things, we are acknowledging that He is all-powerful and that He is the Creator. And if He is powerful enough to create something through His Word, it shouldn't be a far stretch for us to understand that God can recreate us even though sin has come in and uh, we only have a fallen nature without God. I find it very interesting that the Bible starts with the story of creation and in the book of Revelation it ends with the story of creation. Revelation chapter 14 verse 7 ends with a clarion call to worship Him who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And this call is especially important to us in the last days as we are living in a world where the scientific world and unfortunately the majority of the Christian world has accepted evolution, a teaching that strikes at the very heart of all things biblical and all things Christian. But what we see here in Revelation 14 in that three angels message, what we see is that the real issue in these last days is about worship. You're either worshiping the Creator God or you are worshiping someone or something else. Again, I find it very interesting that God created us for worship. And to worship God is the central theme of the Scriptures and it has always been at the heart of the controversy between Christ and Satan. And it has always been at the forefront of the contention between men. We are either worshiping the Creator or we are worshiping someone or something else. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that the prophets were often sent to reprimand God's people for their worship in one of two ways. Either they were worshiping false gods or idols, or they were worshiping the one true God, but not in the manner in which He prescribed that we should worship Him. In other words, they were worshiping in many of the ways that the pagans were worshiping their false gods. And so we see the conflict that is going on as it comes to worship between the one true God and all false gods. It is at the center 
of the conflict between Christ and Satan. And what comes along with false worship is a disregard for God's law. And that's why it's so important for you and me, when we're talking about worship, it's important for us to recognize that in, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, when it says, Worship Him who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water, that it is not only linking us back to the story of creation, but it is taking us back to the Sabbath commandment. I want to show this to you, so turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And here in this chapter you have the Ten Commandments, but I want to point you to the Fourth Commandment starting in verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Here we see that worshiping the Creator is directly connected to the Sabbath commandment. And the Sabbath is directly connected to true worship. You can't separate them and be worshiping the one true God. And that's why Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it describes God's people in the last days. And they are keeping the commandments of God. The implication there is that they are keeping all of them, not eight, not nine, not uh, doing away with them and, and doing whatever seems right in our own eyes, but true worship involves worshiping the Creator who rested on the seventh day. And that's why God says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11 and 12, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God is talking about His recreative power. He's talking about sanctifying His people, transforming His people. And He says the Sabbath will be a sign between you and me that you belong to me, that you are worshiping the Creator. 
Brothers and sisters, how can we as fallen human beings adequately respond to this amazing truth? What could we possibly do in response? And the answer is very simple, and it's given to us in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Worship the Creator. Worship the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. You see, friends, true worship is when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. When, when we prize God above everything else and we place Him first in our hearts, if we truly love God, we will keep His commandments. Brothers and sisters, I, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because the majority of the Christian world is teaching that, that God's commandments are done away with. They were nailed to the cross. In spite of the fact that Jesus himself said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And somehow the Christian world has got it in its mind that abolishing the law is fulfilling the law. Even when Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And when we look at Jesus as the creator of all things, and we see his love for us, that he laid down his life for us, how could we not want to worship Him? He died on the cross to pay our penalty for us so that we might be saved. I want you to notice that salvation is not automatic. Even though Scripture is very clear that Jesus died for everyone, the Scriptures are equally clear not everyone will be saved. But only those who are truly worshiping the Creator, those who are keeping His commandments, those who are seeing Him as our Creator and our Redeemer. And I want you to realize that it wasn't until after the cross that the world realized that the very Creator was the one who had laid down his life for them. So how can we not be like the holy angels in heaven who declare that God is worthy of our worship? What else can we do but worship the one who created us and who is redeeming us? Family, I want to close with 10 reasons why God, more specifically, why Jesus is worthy of our worship. 10 reasons. Number one, 
because He is the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. You go back and you look at the Old Testament sanctuary service and Israel bringing all of their lambs and confessing their sins and their sins being taken into the sanctuary, that was only a temporary covering of sins until the ultimate Lamb of God would come and lay down His life for you and me. The penalty for sin is death. It's an eternal death, an eternal sleep, an eternal separation from God. And Jesus came and paid that penalty for us. Therefore, He is worthy to be worshipped. Number two, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped because He is the bread of life. Again, in the Old Testament, you have Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. God uh, gives them manna to eat, and the people that ate it still died. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven, and whoever eats of me will never die. Here we see the promise of eternal life. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he's the bread of life. Jesus is worthy of our worship, number three, because he is the light of the world. I don't know if you've noticed it, family, but this world is dark and steeped in sin. But Jesus came to bring light to the truth of God. Jesus came, lived a perfect, holy, righteous life. He showed us the love of the Father. He showed us that if we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we also can keep the commandments of God. Number four, Jesus is worthy of our worship because He is the Good Shepherd. Again, the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus paid that penalty for us. Because if we pay that penalty ourselves, we will be eternally separated from God. But He provided a way for God's uh, law to be just and yet showing mercy so that we can yet have a relationship with Him. Number five, Jesus is worthy of our worship because He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is the source of life. And so He is worthy of our worship. Number six, He is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other way to the Father but through Him. And so He is worthy of our worship. Number six, He is the only way by which we can be saved from our sins. I don't know if you've figured it out yet, family, but you cannot save yourself. I, I love it when people tell me in studying with them, well, I'm a good person. 
I love for them to tell me that because it opens up the opportunity to tell them, I believe that. I believe that you're a good person because the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is in the world and convicting the world of what is wrong, of what is right, and trying to lead us to a decision to do what is right. So the fact that you are doing what is right tells me that God is having a positive influence on your life. But if you truly want to be saved, you need God in you, the hope of glory. You need to invite Him into your heart, into your life, to be the Lord and Savior of your life, to be on the throne of your life. You need to worship the Creator. Number seven, Jesus is worthy of our worship because He brings joy and peace. I remember as a child growing up in the Lutheran church, and I often heard them say, the peace of God which passes all human understanding. But I never understood it. I never, I never felt that kind of peace before until I surrendered my heart to Jesus. And, and when the world is crashing down uh, around you and everything is going wrong and, and your life is in turmoil, you can still have peace. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I want that kind of peace. And evolution can't offer that to you. Only the Creator, only the one who is recreating you can give you that kind of joy, that kind of peace. The eighth reason that Jesus is worthy of our worship, our esteem, our fervent adoration is because He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. If we're truly seeking, that's really the key to it, isn't it? Because God knows if you're serious. God knows if you're truly seeking. And if we are, He's promised to give us the Holy Spirit. It just boggles my mind, friends, that the, that the majority of the Christian world has bought into this idea that the commandments of God are done away with. I mean, think about this for a minute. Jesus promised to give us the new covenant. And that new covenant promise is that he is going to write his law in your mind and in your heart. Now, let me ask you a question. If God writes his law in your mind and in your heart, don't you think you would have a desire to keep his commandments? I would think so right? If God is going to write his law in my mind, if he's going to put it in my heart, I'm going to have a desire to keep God's law where I didn't have a desire before that. But even more than that, God promises that if you repent of your sins, 
and invite him to come into your life, he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now you not only have a desire to keep his commandments, but now you have the power of God. That's contrary to what Paul says to Timothy about many so-called Christians in the last day. He says they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. In other words, that power is a gift of God, the Holy Spirit given to you to dwell in you if you cooperate with Him, if you surrender to Him, He will give you the power to keep the commandments of God. Just like Jesus, when He was on this earth as a man, everything that He did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. He emptied himself of his godliness. He didn't do anything in his own power. He did it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you and I can have that gift as well. He has promised it to us if we would surrender ourselves to him and worship the Creator. Number nine, Jesus is worthy of our worship. Because he is the resurrected Lord and he can raise you from the dead. Friends, it wasn't enough that Jesus died for your sins. He also had to rise from the grave. He had to show the power over death. He had to go into the heavenly sanctuary where he is ministering on our behalf. And we can trust Jesus that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. And he promises you, if you surrender to him, if you maintain a living connection with him, if your life record reveals in the judgment that you have maintained that connection with him, he will raise you from the dead. He is worthy of our worship. And number 10, Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the coming king. I don't know about you, but I look forward to the kingdom of God. I love that that prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 where that stone that is cut out without hand, that rock of ages, Jesus himself is going to come back to this earth and crush all of the kingdoms of this world. And he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where righteousness dwells. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, And by your will, they exist and were created. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, uh, the heavenly angels say something very similar, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worthy of our worship Psalm 18 verse 3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Psalm 99 verse 5 